Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to today's IEA debate. My name is Christian Nimitz and I am the head of political economy here at the IEA. I'm joined today by Gary Stevenson, who is an economist who specializes in inequality, former city trader and a member of Patriotic Millionaires. Um, Gary, welcome. Uh, I'm also joined by Mark Littlewood, who is, uh, of course, the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. I'm starting with you, Gary, since, since you're the guest. Um, you also run a YouTube channel, Gary's Economics. You are an economics activist, one could say. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is your basic uh, economic philosophy? What is Garonomics uh, and, and what are you trying to achieve with this? Yeah, so, well, my background is as a trader, basically. Um, I studied economics at London School of Economics. Um, I became a trader in 2008. Uh, so my job was betting on interest rates, which you will be aware, they went to zero all over the world in 2008 because of the financial crisis. Um, so then very quickly, my job became to predict when will interest rates recover, which is a rough proxy for when will the economy recover. And um, the historic story of that is very interesting because markets in 2008 said that they would recover in 2009. In 2009, they said 2010. In 2010, it was 2011. In 2011, it was 2012. In 2012, it was 2013. And even in 2020, just before COVID, markets were predicting a recovery in interest rates later that year. So markets have really incorrectly predicted this recovery for a long time. And um, my job was to understand why. And I became fascinated, basically, understanding why are we not getting this recovery? Why are we not getting this recovery that everybody is expecting? Um, and you could boil that down to basically a simple question of why aren't people spending money? And for me, I think, I think I had an advantage in that I came from quite a poor background and I was still living in the East End of London with the people I grew up with. And I could see that the money wasn't filtering down to these guys. These guys weren't spending money because they weren't getting money. But you guys will be aware, a lot of money was being pumped into the system. So I basically became obsessed with the simple understanding that if the money doesn't get to the people, then you will have no economic recovery because Wealthy people, they spend the money on basically assets. It pushes up stock prices, it pushes up house prices. That doesn't really help the economy, it doesn't help ordinary people. So I came to the conclusion that because we have a problem of inequality, it's not being solved, we will have no economic recovery. So I started to bet very aggressively that there would never be an economic recovery. And by the end of 2011, I was Citibank's most profitable trader in the world, based on basically betting on an economic disaster. So. Um, I didn't want to be an activist, to be honest, but you know, when this is your experience, I think you kind of have to be. And you know, I've continued betting every year since 2011 that the economy will be weak. <coughs> I'm consistently right, and I make very good money doing it. Um, so I think the basic simple message is that there's a structural problem here with inequality. If you don't fix inequality, you will see a weak economy, unaffordable housing, low wage growth, falling living standards. Um, but never could that be more relevant than now. Because in the last two years during COVID, we've seen an unprecedented increase in inequality. It's been the largest ever single increase in millionaire and billionaire wealth in this country. The average billionaire increased their wealth by six hundred and thirty million pounds in the first year of COVID alone. Twenty-two percent average increase in wealth of the richest. So, you know, I wrote a lot of articles at the beginning of COVID saying this will be a disaster if you allow for an enormous increase in inequality as a result of this crisis, which is what we have had. Then you will see 
increased house prices, increased stock prices, increased inequality, increased cost of natural resources, increased inflation, and a massive decrease in standard of living. And um, that's what we've had. So now I'm out here campaigning to let people know if you, if you want to improve living standards, if you don't want to see this kind of cost of living crisis, you have, to, you have to tax the rich people. You have to do something about inequality. And, you know, I'm not a born campaigner, and I'm not just saying this. Um, I've been betting on this for 15 years, and I've made millions of pounds doing it. If we don't fix inequality, we won't fix the economy. Well, okay, if, uh, if you keep winning by betting on uh, a badly performing economy, I hope you'll start losing some bets uh, Me quick. Me too. But I hope, I hope okay. so. Uh, Mark, I mean, that's, that's a fair point. Uh, I, I remember you've probably had similar experiences. I remember I had uh, a debate once with someone from, I think, Occupy, uh, Occupy activist who kept saying, well, capitalism is finished, all downhill from here. And I said to him, well, if you are so sure, if you know things that other market participants don't know, why don't you bet on it? You could be a millionaire. Uh, that, that's an argument that people on our side often make. Now, this would be considerably harder to make against Gary because he has literally done that and he did beat the market. So does that show that he is right? Well, he has been right. That's why he's rich. I mean, congratulations. I mean, and, and successfully predicting the future in almost any capacity, as I mean, Gary was saying he was looking at interest rates, other people try and judge which particular sectors of the economy might perform well. If you judged at the outset that it was worth investing in Tesla or Apple, if you had correctly made that prediction, you would have made a lot of money. So the market prices are there to be beaten. I mean, it's, uh, the, the market isn't telling you what will happen. It's a permanent forum for debate, and those who pick the right lane get yield the results. So if Gary's continually picked the right lane, I mean, it's rather more sophisticated it's about economics than picking horses. But if you know which horse is going to win every race, you're going to get very rich. And the market will often tell you who the favourite is, but that doesn't mean the favourite will win. So my congratulations to Gary. And I probably agree on a chunk of his analysis, actually. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying, what are people complaining about? It's been absolutely marvellous since 2008. We had a wobble with the banks, but other than that, everything is flourishing. Not at all. Productivity's low. Economic growth, I'm doing this as a rounding, but has been, what, in the UK, about 1% since 2008. We've got some growth, but pitiful by uh, um, any long-term historical standards. Um, real problems here, structural problems. I mean, I think we live in a crony capitalist economy, not a capitalist economy. I think there's too much rent-seeking. I think the state is far too big. I disagree, I think, with Gary on the inequality point. I don't believe that the problem is too many billionaires. Uh, you can argue about whether they fairly uh, accrued that wealth or whether it was rigged in some fashion, and I think it behoves free marketeers like those of us at the IA to always keep an eye on whether the gains are genuinely market-gotten gains or whether the system's been rigged in someone's favour. And I would have sympathy for huge quantitative easing and asset bubbles and the rest of it tend to help the rich. Not just the billionaires, by the way. I've benefited personally to the tune of several hundred thousand pounds by the property price boom, just because of ridiculous planning restrictions. I mean, it doesn't make me a billionaire, but it's a good chunk of money. So I'm not sure the problem's inequality, but I would agree with Gary that there are very big problems here. And I would also agree with him that I'm more worried of those at the bottom end of the scale, right? I mean, people who now, you know, if there are these choices between heat or eat, uh, those human beings should be much more in our purview of concern than whether or not somebody can afford a new super yacht. Okay, so some common ground here, points of disagreement, but that was uh, to be expected. Gary, can you just clarify, uh, you say you think uh, inequality is the problem, um, that uh, inequality leads to 
aggregate demand being too low. That's, uh, if I understand you correctly, the, the argument, uh, because the rich have a higher propensity to save. Uh, but then, even if you, how does that work in the long run? I mean, that's an argument that you can make in the depth of a recession. Uh, if you have lots of rich people who just save their money and uh, for some reason it doesn't get invested or not, not enough of it, okay, then from uh, you can make a Keynesian argument that will uh, deepen the recession. But how does that work in the long run? Surely saving is just deferred consumption. So the rich may save, but they spend, it, they spend their money eventually. They're not saving forever. I mean, that, that's a very good point you make. Um, the rich save, but they're not saving forever. Um, do you think that's true? Do you think that, say for example, Jeff Bezos is worth 200 billion pounds. Do you think he's intending to spend that at some point? Well, maybe not him personally, but somebody will inherit that money. Okay, so it's, let's it's assume not going that, to be okay, in a bank account generally forever. generally considered Rishi Sunak's wife is, is a billionaire, okay. Assume she's worth one billion pounds. She will make an income from that money of about five, about 50 million pounds a year, approximately. In the first year of COVID, an average billionaire increased wealth by 22%, so she would have made probably about 440 million pounds a year. I, imagine you made, just from your wealth, 400 million pounds. How much would you spend? I have no idea. I mean, these are numbers that I'm normally not dealing with. Okay, well, imagine you had a wealth of 10 million pounds and you, you got from that every year, you know, 300,000 pounds. Would you spend it all? Probably not. No. Look, the statistics are, are very, very clear. If you look at the spending behavior of very rich people, not only do they not spend down their wealth, they don't even spend the full income from their wealth. That's, and it's, I've got nothing against rich people. I'm a rich person myself, okay? And I do the same thing. I don't spend the full income from my wealth because then I can live off the income and, I, and my wealth can grow. And that's what rich people do, mm -hmm. okay? And in a strong economy, that's not necessarily a problem, right? Because if rich people are growing their wealth, they can invest and the economy can grow, okay? But what if interest rates are stuck at 0%? What if interest rates have been 0% for nearly 15 years? This is an economy in which rich people cannot invest their money. They cannot invest their money because if, inter if interest rates are stuck at 0%, this shows you for sure that if investments are there to be done, they will be done because companies can borrow at 0%. And that's 15 years now. Fifth, we've had a 15-year situation. And look, I'm a rich person, I'm an investor. Okay? If you were to offer me a 1% real return, I would take it. Every single investor in the world would. Because we live in a world where there's so much money held by the rich and so many assets held by the rich looking for investments that there's not enough investments to fulfill them. And what the rich people do is they've got a ton of money coming in and there's no available investments. I'll tell you what they do because I see it. They buy my mate's mum's houses. And look at the collapse in home ownership rates for young people. Those homes are not disappearing. Those homes are being owned by rich people. That, that is what happens, you know. And, those, and the mortgages, you know, which are skyrocketing in size, they don't come from nowhere. That money's being lent from rich people. If you allow rich people to accumulate more and more and more wealth every year, whilst ordinary people are seeing their ability to spend collapsing, it is obvious that the wealth will transfer quicker and quicker and quicker from ordinary people to the rich. And that is what's happening. Look, my background is mathematics, okay? I studied mathematics in my undergrad. If you have a system where there is a continual flow of assets from the masses to the rich, that is not a stable system. And you're seeing that now. You know, and I come from a poor background. Look, my dad worked for the post office for 35 years, okay? He was able to buy a house. You know, women are rich. He's got a house, paid off, raised the kids. You can't do that now. You know, I know people who've got degrees who will never be able to afford property. You know, Right. Can I just unpick? Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I agree with some of your analysis of the symptoms here. Property prices are absolute bananas. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, you, especially here in London, right? But across the UK as a whole, it's absolutely absurd the ratio of property prices to, to average incomes. 
But I'm not persuaded that this is because Jeff Bezos is not spending his money. Um, uh, I'm not persuaded of that. Uh, I mean, in fact, if uh, billionaires want to buy lots of property, uh, the sort of IEA broadline on this is build a lot more. I mean, and the whole problem has been a lack of supply. Now, so if you've got almost, it's not quite a fixed supply, but if you're not building more and loads of people want a house, unsurprisingly, the prices go up. If Bezos wants to spend his tens of billions on housing, Blimey, this should be a boom for the British building and construction industry. We can build whole towns for him to, 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 to purchase and whole towns for post office workers and the rest to purchase. To my mind, that's a supply problem. And the real way to crack that is a supply side revolution. If a billionaire wants to buy 100 homes, good luck to him. I just want to make sure the supply is there for you know average Joe on an average wage to buy a home as well. So you know, I don't, you're, you're treating the kind of stock of housing in this in, in in, in this case as being a kind of act of God, I'm saying public policy can change that. Let's build a lot more houses. I, I, Jeff Bezos can only buy so many houses. Well, yeah. I, I wish that that were true because, because I would love for the house price crisis to be over. I would dearly love for that, you know. I'm still relatively young and I see how badly it affects my friends and, sure. and my family, you know. They want to have, they want to have families of their yeah, own. It's a disaster. And they can't afford houses, right? But um, I lived in Tokyo for two years, okay? Tokyo has 37 million people, enough housing for 37 million people. Housing is it's not really more affordable than here. You know, go to Manhattan, it's extremely mm. dense, yeah. you know. You can build extremely dense cities and their housing is not more affordable. Well, yeah, you're, I mean, Manhattan is the equivalent of Mayfair. If you were to look at the USA well, as a whole, it is enormously more affordable but than But not there. in the places where people want to live. Well, no, I mean, Listen, it's, it's imp- I think it's important to realise that it is not only housing which has become phenomenally expensive. All assets have become phenomenally expensive. Sure. Stocks have become phenomenally expensive. Land has become phenomenally expensive. Gold has become phenomenally expensive. This is what you would imagine to happen if you gave all of the wealth to people who like to buy assets. And who likes to buy assets? The rich. And look, you know, I've been betting on this for a long time. And you know, I wrote my, I wrote my thesis on this at Oxford. If you give the money to the rich, they will buy assets. And asset prices will go up and interest rates will come down, you know. You don't have to agree with me, but I've been saying it for 12 years and I've been right, you know. It's not well, creating a booming investment. And if that's true, that would be true even if you had no crony capitalism. I mean, you made uh, that distinction between cronyism and uh, gains that are made yep. in the market. But if it becomes uh, self-perpetuating, if you then have an investment crisis, the rich don't know what to do with their money, just buy assets, that could be true even if there was no cronyism. Well, that's true. I mean, you, you, one starts to get in here to what you think the cause and effect is. I mean, I, I actually... Uh, I think it's not the asset boom that's causing low interest rates. It's low interest rates that's causing the asset boom, right? I mean, in a, on a very, very modest level. You know, I'm kind of modestly affluent middle class. Uh, uh, you know, my decision has been put everything in assets. I don't want it in my Barclays savings account with a half percent interest rate. You've got to be joking. I'm going to pour it into the stock market or even thinking about buying myself a second home, a small flat somewhere, because I anticipate those rates for return will be higher. So I think a lot of the asset boom has been a reflection of a decision by central banks to keep interest rates very low. And I'd like us to unravel that. I think that, you know, if, if you know, the broad, the broad gist of interest rates having to be a couple of percent above inflation, there or thereabouts, has been observed in the breach. That's ridiculous. We've got 7% inflation and interest rates on the floor. Now, I'm conscious you probably can't just jack interest rates up to say 10 or 12% tomorrow because of the short-term shock. But I'm with Gary. I, I, I wish his prediction had been wrong. Uh, but I would have liked to see an incremental return 
return to something like normal interest rates over the past 15 years. We have not seen that. And a lot of these problems are caused by us not having bitten that bullet. And uh, you can always chew the bullet slowly rather than having to actually bite it. And, you know, the, the longer you leave it, the worse it gets. But interest rates have been a joke as, as monetary policy. But, yeah, isn't that just a political choice? Well, central banks could set interest rates higher if they wanted to. So, you know, this is the exact area that I've worked in. Observing central banks, what do they do? Um, since 2008, we have seen a number of central banks attempt to raise interest rates. The most obvious example is the US that raised the rates to sort of about 2.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened? Eventually, they were pushed back. Because when you live in a world where there's no positive yielding investments, no significantly positive yielding investments, and there's a huge amount of money being held by rich people who want to invest, as soon as something pops up, like I said, a 1% real yield investment, everybody rushes in and they buys it because, because there's a huge amount of money looking for investment and there's not, sure. much, not enough spending. So when central banks have done this, and it's not only the US that have tried this, you know, Australia and New Zealand tried it, the Scandinavians have tried it, even the ECB tried it at one point, I think maybe possibly two points. Every single time a central bank stuck their head up and said, we're going to try to raise interest rates, their currency went through the roof, it created the recession, and they had to back down. You know, I think there is, there's a broad economic situation here of too much money being saved and not enough money being spent, and that creates an asset boom. I think I don't think that's a controversial statement at this point. I think most economists would agree with that. And, and the savings ratio is too high, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, oh, well, you think that the central bank policy is a mistake. Yes, I do. But this is the consensus. This is the reason why interest rates have been on the floor. You know, and and I think you will, to an extent, you're likely to see what you want because over the next couple of years, it's very likely that global interest rates, central bank rates, are going to rise. Possibly not significantly, possibly not to very high levels. But I think we're going to see these interest rates move up to sort of 2 2.5%. But what you're going to see is the economy is so phenomenally weak. 2.5% real terms. Oh, not in real terms, no. Oh, well, in that case, they're still negative, right? Yeah, <laughs> so well, they probably will stay negative. Yeah. They probably will stay negative. Well, I think this is a disaster for uh, all of the sort of things that I would like to see in a flourishing economy that ain't happening. The creative destruction of free markets is an important part of it. When you've got interest rates on the floor, zombie companies become, if not the norm, at least uh, sustainable entities. You don't get productivity growth. It's possible for companies that otherwise would have gone bust with what you might call a natural normal interest rate to survive. Those companies, therefore, don't tend to be the most productive. You've therefore got a misallocation of resources. You therefore have a whole load of companies that are just about getting by, but not making the sort of breakthroughs that you'd need if you want to yearn for 3 4 5% GDP growth per annum, which is what I want to yearn for. So I think, you know, I'm not trying to pin all of it on, the, on interest rates. I think there are a whole load of other problems in the economy. I think our tax system is wrecked. I think our regulatory system is ridiculous. Um, so there are other things that are pushing down growth as well. But low interest rates seem to me a real cause of that problem. Now, if you decide that actually what you want, because now is not the time to readjust or recalibrate the economy in any strategic way, what you want is a lot of consumption now, as Christian was saying at the start, you know, my God, we've got a recession. We've just got to get people spending, spending, spending. Um, We've got to get money into their hands. Okay, that's a kind of Keynesian crisis management tool. But over the longer term, uh, I want to see the. I want to see businesses grow, go bust, be replaced by better businesses with a better allocation of resources, and I think low interest rates are working quite strongly against that normal market force of creative destruction. I think it's, if, if, if I may. Yeah, go on. I think it's a, 
I think it's important to think about what it would actually mean if interest rates go up. And interest rates are going up, okay? Mm -hmm. Interest rates are expected by the market to go up to sort of two, two and a half percent. Normally in the UK, which as you point out, will probably stay negative real, mm -hmm. but they are going up. You know, when you raise interest rates, it's effectively a transfer of wealth from debtors to creditors. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, in the last two years, the government has taken an enormous amount of debt out. And that credit is sitting, the statistics all show, as an enormous increase in cash held by wealthy individuals. You know, it's, I think it's important people realise how enormous this is. You know, and just to give a, give a sense of scale, the most expensive thing announced by Rishi Sunak in the summer statement was cutting income tax, which will cost the government about £6 billion a year. The amount of money printed and given out by the government during COVID, which ended up with richer people, was £450 billion. So that's 75 times larger. It's un... Nothing else, in, in my opinion, nothing else really matters with regards to the economy. It's, it's vitally important that we realise £450 billion has been transferred from the government to the wealthy in the last two years, a phenomenally large amount. And if you raise interest rates now, that means the government will have to start paying interest to the rich on that £450 billion. And debtors, which is, you know, young, young families, young parents, will have to pay higher interest on their mortgages to the rich. This is going to make inequality but, even worse. But again, I'm, I'm just trying to work out whether we're vigorously agreeing, but just looking at this down the different ends of the telescope. The government, governments of, of, of all stripes have decided since 2001 to run budget deficits. It's now more than 20 years since we run a budget surplus. Mm -hmm. But much, much larger in the last two years. Significantly larger. Yes, well, significantly yeah. COVID, obviously, colossal. But also it was very, you know, very large in the immediate uh, um, aftermath of the 2008 crash. Yeah. The austerity of the coalition government was a very modest cut in real terms expenditure, but still deficit deficit, 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 deficit. So if the policy of the government is to spend more money than it is bringing in in receipts, receipts basically tax revenues, they might have one or two minor ways of raising money other than that, I guess sale of assets, that kind of thing. But basically, if the government in rough and ready terms wants to spend more than tax revenue, it needs to borrow that money. So it needs to borrow it from the likes of you or Jeff Bezos, because we've decided we haven't got the money to spend on the NHS this year or on education or on road building or whatever it might be, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. And that requires us to use some of Gary's money to do it. So lend us some money, Gary, so we can keep the lights on in the hospital this year. Mm -hmm. Now, you can approve or disapprove of that, but that's been a political decision to consume, to spend more than the government's actually got in its wallet, to spend more than it's got in its coffers, not just once, for a generation now, uh, let alone the promises and the, and the sort of liabilities of gold-plated public sector pensions that we're all going to have to pay. Now, that's a political choice. Mm -hmm. And if you want to meet those bills, you've got to find the resources from somewhere. Guess what? Gary and Jeff Bezos come into view. You know, how about lending us some money because we want to spend it now? Uh, so, I mean, that's what's happened. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you're on the sort of same side as me, that the government should have balanced its books a long, long time ago. I mean, on that statement, yes, because there's an alternative to borrowing, which is to tax rich people. You know, that last 20 years. Yeah, let's move on to that, to the, <laughs> yeah, to the policy yeah, conclusions. Yes. Uh, what would that look like? I mean, uh, as far as I can tell, Britain already has a fairly progressive tax and benefit system. The top 1% pay something like 30% of total tax revenue. Why is that not enough? The top 1% of taxable income earners. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the richest people don't have very high taxable income because they know how to avoid it. You know, it's very pertinent right now, you know. It's in the newspapers very significantly that some senior members of government might be close within their families to some level of tax avoidance. You know, listen, I, I earn a lot of money, okay? And I, I earn a lot of money by working. And to be honest, sometimes I think it was ridiculous the amount of money I was paid to work, but I paid 50% tax. At that time, there was a temporary 50% income tax threshold, which I paid. Um, and yet the Duke of Westminster inherits eight billion pounds and pays nothing. You know, so 
I'm probably in the top 1% of earners that year, officially, because that's taxable income. But the Duke of Westminster, the reason he pays nothing is because that is not classified as taxable income. So what we currently have is a tax system which is very effective at taxing people like me, who come from poor backgrounds, but manage to do well and make some money, and extremely bad at taxing people like the Duke of Westminster, or like Rishi Sunak's dear wife, who don't work for their money. So, you know, what we really have is a tax system which is fair on poor people, but doesn't tax rich people at all. Because so, look, I'm nowhere near as rich as Richard's next wife, or as the Duke of Westminster. Yeah, I, I pay yeah you're distinguishing between wealth and income, basically. Yeah, that's, so that's yeah, it's, not, it's not a progressive tax system, because when you look at the truly rich, they pay almost nothing. So how can you say it's a progressive tax system? Well, I mean, you have to base it on something, and at least the top percentile well, as it is base now. Base it on the reality. So, so, I'm not a billionaire, yeah, so and billionaires pay less than me. Is that yeah. fair? Is that progressive? Okay, so it's not about the tax rate. If we look at lifetime income on individuals or sources, it's not even nearly progressive. It's massively regressive at the top end. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. Billionaires are paying virtually nothing. And it's, it's, it's the people who are watching this, teachers, lawyers, doctors, it, taxi drivers, cleaners, they're paying their tax. Yeah. And, and people like me, you know, I pay my tax. And the billionaires are playing like that. It's not a progressive tax system. Okay, what, what, what do you want to do about that? I mean, I, I take it for you, it's not about the tax rate as such, but how uh, you assess um, what a tax is paid on in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That really, talking about the rate is, is meaningless when, when the riches don't pay any rate at all. Really, the problem is avoidance. And, and of, very often, legal avoidance. Very often, it's legal avoidance. It's loopholes. And it's the fact that very rich people are able to take income, for example, as capital gains in companies, which they never have to sell the shares of, so they never have to pay the tax on, or it's in trusts. Inheritance tax is completely easily avoidable. So really, the problem is, and, and I, Mark will probably agree with me on this, it's a ridiculously complicated tax system which allows the super rich to pay very, very little, in many cases, nothing. You know, we, we know Elon Musk pays zero tax every year. You know, he's the richest person in the world. You know, this is, you know, that's the US, but you know. Who pays zero tax? Elon Musk. Right. He, I think he, was, he announced he paid zero tax in the most recent tax year. I think he actually announced he'd written the largest ever check. That was for, more recent when he, he, yeah. he sold some. He sold some. So he will pay some capital gains. I yeah, think in the yeah, previous yeah. tax year, he paid zero, you know. So. But the, the, there, is a, there is a problem here, uh, um, which I hope starts to sort of filter down the income or wealth ladder. There are two things I want to. Uh, pick, pick apart here. And again, let's sort of look at the, the, the kind of middlingly rich. You know, I've accumulated wealth by savings and buying things um, from my post-tax income, right? I've paid all of my income tax. I've, 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 I don't think I've ever made a mistake. I've filled in my forms loyally and got an account and a check them and it's all come out. And if I owe more, I write the check. And with what I've got left, I buy stocks and shares and I'm clearing my mortgage. My house is going up in value. So you might then look at me. I mean, I'm not in the Gary or Bezos league. You say, well, Littlewood's a bit wealthy here. Let's go after his house. And I'm sort of saying, well, hang, hang on a second. I bought that house having paid 40% tax on, on my income. You know, that, that's, I've already paid it once. So there's a sort of, um, I think there's a question of double taxation. Sometimes that argument is unsophisticated because, of course, I go and buy, you know, I don't know, alcohol or products with VAT on them with my post-tax income. Mm -hmm. But one is whether you want to tax wealth. The other is, a, is the Laffer curve argument that, you know, it, and this is what I hope starts to move down the income spectrum, is that the rich are extremely mobile. I was trying to think, Lewis Hamilton, for example, up and off from the UK, I think it was Monaco he went to, it might have been Switzerland, I can't remember, entirely to avoid tax. 
Um, I know, I won't name him, but I know one very rich chap. He said, that's it, I'm leaving the United Kingdom. I'm going to move to Gibraltar. I'm not going to pay this level of tax. And unless you are, I mean, those are extreme, extreme examples. Uh, more likely, again, as you're moving down the lower ends of the spectrum, if the tax rate was very high on me, uh, you know, I don't think I'd suddenly move to Singapore, but I might retire a bit earlier or try and cut my hours or some such like, and all of that's a drain because the rich are mobile. So there's a sweet spot somewhere. And I think it's difficult to know whether actually dialing up these rates would improve that sweet spot. I think in the French presidential elections, the, the chap Mélenchon, who came third in the first round, advocated a 100% income tax on all incomes above 360,000 euros per annum. Now, you know, you could sort of, I think he just assumed that that money would sort of pour into the French government coffers. More likely than not, people would flee France. And unless you're willing to impose a kind of Berlin Wall structure, that, that cash moves. So uh, I'm not against taxing, I just think we need to be conscious of you know, where the sweet spot is to get um, either a fair rate, but also a realistic uh, rate of return. That if, if there were to be a position in which every billionaire leaves Britain um, because Gary's tax rates have come in, your revenues are going to be lower and your economy is going to be weaker. These billionaires aren't employing people. They're not, you know, buying their yachts and harbouring them in British docks. They've, they've sorted off to Singapore or Texas or something. Yeah, on the issue of mobility, um, yeah. if, if your taxes suddenly went up, you might say, okay, I have family connections here, I, um, I'm not that mobile, I want to stay. But uh, specifically in the British case, a lot of the people in the top percentile or so uh, are originally from somewhere else. I mean, there is a perception that uh, all immigrants all work as, as fruit pickers or construction workers, but actually Britain has a very high proportion of uh, very wealthy immigrants. Uh, now, for those people, I would imagine that mobility would be quite high. If you've originally moved here from somewhere else, uh, it yeah. wouldn't be such a big step to say, OK, yeah. moving back. OK, so the few, there's a few points there which you raised. So I'm just going to come back on all of them. Um, the first thing is, you know, when I talk about raising tax on the rich, I'm not talking about somebody who has a house in London which has gone up to price a million pounds. You know, that is a lot of money. and there are, if you have that, you're lucky to have that. A lot of people couldn't afford that. But we're, to, we're not talking about taxing people with one million pounds. We're talking about taxing people with 100 million pounds. You know, these guys are accumulating more and more and more and more and more. And if they keep accumulating, it will come from the rest of us, especially from the poor and ordinary people in this country. So I'm not going after people who've got houses in Battersea that have gone up in price. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about going after... It's about unnerving. My house is in Battersea. Let's talk about mobility. I think you brought up Lewis Hamilton, yeah. and that's a really interesting example, because Lewis Hamilton is actually someone like what I said before, who is not from a wealthy background, and whilst he is very wealthy now, yeah. much more, yeah. much wealthier than I am, he gets his money through working. Um, so actually... In my opinion, it's not people like Lewis Hamilton who are the problem. The problem is people who are enormously rich and simply hoard and accumulate wealth through not working. And when we talk about mobility, I think that is very interesting because I think one thing that has been sort of revealed in the last few months is people are mobile, but assets are not very mobile. Because, you know, we have, we have one of the richest people in the world in London, Roman Abramovich, owns Chelsea Football Club. Roman Abramovich can leave. 
He can't take Chelsea Football Club with him. I think that's a fascinating insight and one I'd agree. I mean, you, it, it's worth saying, if I've understood it correctly, and I may be doing Lewis Hamilton a great disservice here, I don't want to traduce him unfairly, but I think he's now paying much less tax on his working income than he previously was, right? Yeah. And lower than you and I, yeah. uh, even though he's earning massively but more than you and I because he's decided about, to move to a low tax yeah. jurisdiction. What I'm talking about is raising tax on people who simply hoard wealth but, for but, generations. And then we can lower tax on working people, which can attract business in this country. You know, these are exactly the people who are easiest to tax because even if they leave, they own the property the in this country. Oh, well, the might, are here. A, a point of agreement here might be, uh, I mean, I want our tax system to be fair, but I also want it to be realistic and kind of non-contestable. Uh, and I'm quite worried about a lot of our taxes that where you can see there's a good intention. Let's take corporation tax, for example. You know, the concept being, you know, a big company that makes profits. Well, come on, we'll just take a slice of your profits. You'll still have a load of profits. What are you complaining about? But it's an extremely inelegant tax because what exact profits have you made and where have you registered the IP? And if it's an international process, you know, let's say a, the example I usually use is a, a Hollywood blockbuster that's shown in a movie in London. You know, where's the profit made? Some of it's presumably got to be, you know, written over to the Hollywood studios, some to the actors, some to the cinema. You, you've got that farcical argument with Starbucks who are arguing that they don't make any profit in the UK because all of the profits derive from their brilliant architectural layout, which is an intellect, piece of intellectual property registered in Amsterdam, I believe. So you get this awkward situation where, however well-intentioned initially you might think the tax is, the tax is paid by a negotiation across the table between the potential person being taxed and HMRC. Tax morale collapse because it's cutting a deal. It's almost like a business deal. I would much rather move our tax burden onto things that we that we can easily identify. Land would be a good example of that. I'm, I would favour a, a land value tax, property tax, more, and and also uh, onto things that, if you like, we don't like, uh, rather than things we want to encourage. I'm, I mean, it's a bit of a flippant point, but the you know, if the purpose of tobacco tax is to try and deter you from smoking, and the purpose of alcohol tax is trying to deter you from drinking. What's the purpose of income tax to try to deter you from working? So I, I'm with you. I'd shift that burden. And, but it, it needs to be both fair and also simple. You know what I mean? And you're right. If you, if, you're, if, if you want to tax, let's say, the ownership of English football clubs, quite easy to do. We can spot them. They're there. They have a postcode and address. And the same with property in general or, or land in general. It's all registered on the land registry. You can't hide it. Mm. Uh, I'd be very inclined to go down that. Uh, not that I, I, don't, I want to see the overall tax burden fall. I just want to see the makeup of it change in something like a yeah. rational fashion. Uh, Would me, that work for you, moving taxation towards tangible assets? For me, the single most important thing is that you, you effectively tax the, the very rich. That's the most The fish rots my head down. If you, if you, uh, this is purely as an economist. At the moment, these people are often paying close to zero. Sure. Rates, okay? And they have enormous income. Uh, yep. just, just think about what that does. Okay? If you, you allow a class of people who own large chunks of the country who receive enormous incomes and pay zero tax rates, what will that, what will they do? Of course they will buy the rest of the assets. Of course they will. It's obvious that they will do that. So if we do not tax these people, they will own larger and larger shares of our country and it will bankrupt the rest of us and our government. Because, you know, if you were to give all of your assets to somebody else who has no obligation to give anything back to you and you cannot get anything back from them, you will be bankrupted. But you're, you're, you seem to be seeing this, Gary, which I don't think I do, as a zero-sum game. Uh, now, it is obviously true if we take a pound from you and give it to somebody on a below-average salary, 
it is true, according to you know most economists, that poorer person is more likely to spend that pound rather than to save that pound. So if you want to increase consumption, yes, you get higher propensity to consume at the lower end of the scale. But I'm not quite a zero-sum game as you. I think a huge problem at the lower end of the spectrum is how heavily we're taxing ordinary people. Uh, I mean, absolutely extraordinary because you know there aren't. I think there aren't enough billionaires for us to tax if you want if you want the government to keep spending all of this money. Uh, we talk about a cost of living crisis for most households. Tax is probably your biggest cost of living, right? Not just your income tax, but you know yeah. if you fancy going down the pub or you know going out shopping or whatever, absolute colossal cost of living. That tax tax burden would start, to, if you could reduce that, that gives these people a little bit of uh, breathing room. Uh, the idea that that should be considered fixed and government spending should be considered fixed and then, and then we complain about energy bills and food bills. I'm not trying to trivialise energy and food bills going up, but that's only one element of the household budget. Tax is, is going to be a bigger part of the average household budget than energy bills. So I think a smaller government would help. And generally speaking, I think we've, got, we've allowed a rather inefficient public sector to become too much of a proportion of our economy. I don't go the whole hog. I mean, I think there is a, you know, we need a welfare state safety net. I don't want people, you know, starving on the streets of our cities. But the government is now, you know, touching 50% of all spending in the UK. I mean, into the 40s. I've rounded up a little bit there. That's just, that's just ridiculous. We're spending on welfare, I think, north of £10,000 per household per year. But the government can't seem to eliminate poverty. I mean, you'd assume that, I don't know, 70, 80, 90% of households don't need any welfare. So you've then got, I don't know, 50, 100 grand a year for the households that need it. As Ronnie Reagan said, somewhere there must be some overhead. So I think a big government has led to us being unproductive. I think high taxes has led to us being unproductive. And I think regulation's gone crazy. I mean, we talk about the tax code. At least you can count that. If you were to look at the books of regulations that every business needs to comply with. I mean, this is growing like topsy every year. So we're spending a vast amount of our time going around complying rather than producing. Uh, if you want a very compliant state, that's great. If, which I think you and I want, you want a very productive economy, uh, that's not so great. So I can see all sorts of things here which could liberate the, the kind of average worker, the average family, that aren't based around necessarily how much more of Bezos's money could we get or, or, or equivalent uh, uh, equivalent people. Okay, do you want to quickly come back to that and then yes, we move I on mean, to a different segment? Let's look at what's happening right now. Let's look at what's happening right now. Government spending has increased massively over the last couple of years. Okay, The government increased their debt by £450 billion. In the first year of COVID, the richest 250 families in the country increased their wealth by £106 billion. All of that money ended up in the bank accounts of richer people, Okay, £450 billion. Okay? That was printed money. It's caused an inflation crisis, which means ordinary people, and not just the poorest, we're talking about half the country here, are worried about whether they can feed their families sure, next week. Sure, okay? And that is because the government has given a huge amount of money to rich people. We talk about the increasing size of the state. What about the increasing size of the bank accounts of these wealthy people? They are not going to be struggling to pay the bills. But those are, who, those are the people we've borrowed from, right? We've borrowed from those people in order to spend on the NHS yeah, education exactly. whenever we, we you borrowed, want. But, and so, they have, but they profited. No, I'm rather, with, yeah. I'm rather with where the implication of your statement is going. I think we should have spent less. 
I think the government should basically balance the books every year. Oh, in the We've, last two years, you think, so you think well, they should the, have the The last scheme? two, sorry, we should have built a surplus or a sov- some sort of sovereign wealth fund over the previous 15 years. We, we never mend the roof while the sun is shining. But the problem is, you know, what if somebody else owns your roof and all of the resources you need to fix that roof? You know, like, this is a situation where ordinary people can't afford to heat their homes. But hang on, hang on. So, so, you know, so the, the government, the, the, the government controls the world by more than the, ever in history. Government spending is north of forty percent, forty p plus. Touching, you know, getting towards fifty p. But 50p. where does the money end up? Well, the money ends up with the rich. Well, no, there's a huge no. spending. No, that, well, the rich increase is by forty-two percent. Twenty-two percent. Do you think it's right that during a health crisis in which ordinary people can't afford to feed their kids no. and heat their homes, the rich see the biggest but, ever historically? But, but hang on, I'm, I'm trying to work out how a trillion pounds, in rough and ready terms, I think it's a little bit south of that, a trillion pounds of government expenditure yep. every year. Large tranches of which are attempted to uh, are designed to deal with the problems that you're worried about. You know, mm-hmm. have people got access to healthcare? Have people got access to housing? Have people got enough money to put food on the table? The, the government is a pretty massive multinational company. It's got a trillion a year to spend, and I'm rather sceptical about how it is spending that to try and realise the ends that you and I would probably agree on, that everybody can you know, have a decent life and aren't worried about whether they can keep the lights on or food on the table. But my God, one trillion pounds a year of government spending doesn't seem to have cracked that problem, right? Let's maybe move on to some real-world examples here, because it's always easy to say, oh, well, my kind of tax plan, my kind of system would solve all that. But, Gary, is there any place in the world which gets this more or less right, either now or in history? Uh, Because uh, the idea of wealth taxation is is fairly old, and there have been a couple of examples, but I'm not aware of any success stories here. Uh, West Germany used to have a wealth tax, and they abolished it at some point. Uh, It didn't raise much revenue. It was uh, super complicated to administer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Much of it disappeared in the tax bureaucracy. So what would you do differently? Or or is there any way that that's... Yeah, I think there's one fantastic example of a country which did a very good job of taxing the very richest and did that to provide a good quality of living for ordinary people. And you are sitting in that country. It is this country in the 50s and 60s. This country had very high rates of tax on the richest people. And at that point in time, an ordinary person could work an ordinary job and take care of a family. House prices were on average two to three times income. Okay, I'm guessing post-war Britain isn't your idea of a... No, it's not, my, it's not my idea of Nirvana um, at all. I, mean, I think there were a good number of things that were going well in the 50s and 60s. There was a kind of entrepreneurial spirit in the, in the, in the post-war years, despite the growth in government that I, I think was good for the economy. You mentioned um, uh, wealth taxes in West Germany, Christian. I, I don't know anything about them. I did take some notes of, uh, which I think I've shared with Gary before, about when this was tried in France. Now, it might be Gary's got a better system, I mean, but, so I'm not going to hold you fully responsible for what Francois Mitterrand did in France in the 80s, but he introduced a wealth tax in 1982. It's estimated that that cost the French government twice as much as it brought in in revenue due to tax flight. Between the start of the millennium, the year 2000 and 2016, an estimated 60,000 millionaires exited France in 2016, 12,000 millionaires alone exited France. I think that's why Macron scrapped the wealth tax. Again, you can see the good intentions here, but it it doesn't seem to my mind that that's given the French government any more 
clay to mould anything with. In fact, possibly less. Uh, not just a, not just as the French government got less revenue to tackle poverty or, or, or whatever, the French economy suffered because these people are no longer spending their money in Paris or whatever they're spending their money on or employing people. So I'm going to get to where where would be the best places to look. I mean. <sighs> It's not the only thing that matters, but economic growth is more or less what I want to strive for. It's not the only thing that matters in a, in a society. And um, if you were looking at the economic growth side of it, you know, Singapore's been a colossal success story since the end of the Second World War. Got quite a lot of concerns about its human rights side and how, free, how much free speech there is. But if you just look in economic terms, wow, at the end of the Second World War, Singapore was about per capita, same level of affluence as an average African country, now way ahead of the UK in three generations. Hong Kong, obviously, in turmoil at the moment, but if you were to look at a historical example again, Hong Kong from the end of the Second World War until a few years ago, tremendous success story. Uh, uh, Switzerland, I would say, is a pretty good success story in, in Europe in recent years. Uh, very affluent, good economic growth, strong currency. What do all of those three countries have in common? And I don't think you can just cut and paste that system and bring it to the UK. I think you can only derive lessons from it. You know, I don't want people caned because they've gone jaywalking or spat out some chewing gum. <laughs> that sort of, I didn't want to borrow Singapore's criminal justice system. But what do they have in common? In broad terms, a low tax economy, a relatively lightly regulated economy. Relative, there are regulations, but relatively lightly regulated, even if those regulations are deep. Uh, and a relatively small state that sticks to its lane. It might well be, you know, we're really going to focus this on welfare or on cutting crime or on defending the our territory or whatever, but sticks to its lane rather than growing like toxic. Those uh, where I've seen relative failure, and as long as the UK in the last 15 years has been a catastrophic place to live, it's just been a rather disappointing place to live, uh, but tended to go, government's not staying in its lane, every problem we come across, the answer is more government spending, any, uh, any affliction to the economy, we need a new regulatory handbook to deal with it. That's the, route, the road to rack and ruin in my view. And what they also have in common, those places, is uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Switzerland, they don't seem to be that bothered about billionaire and millionaire wealth. So do, do these places, why do the problems that you describe, why do they not seem to apply there? I mean, if you go to these places, if you go to Hong Kong, if you go to Singapore, if you go to Switzerland, they have many of the same problems we do. Unaffordable housing if you come from a poor family, low levels of social mobility, Difficult to get good jobs if you come from a poor background. These are not Nirvanas. I've been there. I presume you. No, they're not Nirvanas. Yeah, I, haven't been, I haven't been Hong Kong. I've been Singapore. And the, level of, yeah. the level of living there is not particularly high. They have high levels of. You know, I mean, these are essentially well, three banking median, states. Median incomes are very high. Yeah, Switzerland's a lot richer than we are. Well, I mean, Singapore has a median income high, but it doesn't include any of the iterant workers. You know, they, they have a huge number of basically workers from other countries, Malaysia and Indonesia, and their statistics are not included. But Gary, what I'm trying to look at is the trajectory. I mean, look at look yeah. how far Singapore's come in three generations. It's spectacular. I'm not pretending, as I said, they're not Nirvanas. Yeah. I'm not saying Singapore's got everything right. Far, yeah. far from it. Okay. Nor so Switzerland. But I'm just if you wanted to sort of look at countries that we might learn lessons from. Yeah. Yeah. to be richer and to be growing faster. It seems to me those are a couple of countries you might want to have a long look at. Let's talk about trajectory. Use the term catastrophic. You said that the UK economy is not catastrophic. In the next year, we're going to see literally half of this country, one of the richest countries in the world, not be able to heat their homes in the winter. 
Half of the country. Well, that would be catastrophic. That hasn't happened yet. I was talking about the last 15 years. It's going to happen. Well, that is clearly... And 20, 30% people above that are going to lose their entire disposable income. We're increasing living standards. We're increasing the cost of basically by 20 to 30%. It's going to be a catastrophe. And I think, I mean, you you highlight the energy side there. I, I agree, I think, on energy. The, the, our government's approach, again, politicians of all stripes over the last 10 or 15 years, has been ludicrous, so, insane. So do you think it's right that this country can be in a situation where half the country can't heat their homes in winter, and yet we have seen the biggest ever increase in millionaire and billionaire wealth? And we are then raising taxes, not on the billionaires, but national insurance attacks on ordinary working people. The people watching this will have their tax increased by 2.5%, and billionaires, who often pay nothing, are not seeing a Right, but hang on. The, 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 the point of disagreement between us, I, I hope you'll accept, is not that I wish billionaires to get richer whilst half the population shivers to, you know, and gets hypothermia. Right? That's not the outcome I want. I'm just not seeing that the solution to the energy problem and rising cost of living and rising house prices is to sort of go for the billionaires and try and get more of their resources. I think the solutions are, as I was outlining earlier, liberalisation of planning laws. Absolutely ridiculous how few houses we've built. Madness. Uh, I think our energy strategy has been a catastrophe. Now, obviously, to some considerable degree, this is being hit by geopolitical events in Russia and Ukraine. But nevertheless, uh, on your energy bill, the profits for an energy company are dwarfed by the levies placed on that bill by the government. I think the ratio is four to one, five to one. For every pound that the energy company is making in raw profit, the government's taking four or five quid off you. Again, I see the government as part of the problem on this cost of living crisis. We haven't gone for shale gas. I'm not saying that would completely has solved the problem, but there's something potentially here right under our feet that we've decided just to look a gift horse in the mouth. Uh, these are really quite extraordinary, bad strategic decisions. That, And if you accumulate enough bad strategic decisions over a long enough period of time, then you get grimness. And I'm not saying the last 15 years have been great. You're saying that this coming year will be probably the worst of the last 15. I guess the last 15 years have not been great. They've not been a total catastrophe. They've been a disappointment. Uh, and a lot of people have had it tougher than you would have expected over a 15-year period. But uh, I, I'm not buying the, if only we could sort of get our hands on the resources of a number of billionaires, that would set it all right. I think that, I think actually that what's gone structurally wrong is from a million different points. Um, uh, energy policy, regulatory policy, tax policy, planning policy, uh, the growth of the state, all of these things combine for a toxic mix of a country and an economy going nowhere. In fact, going backwards, spending beyond its means. And if you keep spending like there's no tomorrow, eventually there won't be. Yeah, I don't think we're going to uh, completely solve this conundrum now. Uh, but since we're up against the clock and uh, approaching the end, um, can I just look for some common ground, maybe? Um, Gary, uh, it, it sounds like um, that uh, you don't see yourself as an anti-capitalist, but more uh, do, do you see yourself as a more like a, a Keynes figure, someone who's trying to save yeah. capitalism from itself? Well, what I'm getting at is, do, yeah. you, do you have something positive to say about look, capitalism and free markets and the dynamism? That I see produce? myself as a very good economist. I'm the guy who's been right for the last 13 years. And I'm, I'm telling you what will happen now. If we don't tax the rich, we will see a disaster in this country. We will see a humanitarian disaster in this country. We are going to see half the country fall into real poverty. Not just relative poverty, real poverty. And I'm the guy who's been predicting it right for the last 13 years. If we don't do something to take these resources back, it doesn't get better. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And I've been betting on that for 15 years. I've been right for 15 years. I've made millions of pounds doing it. And I really, really hope we make sure that I'm actually wrong this time. 
Well, uh, I can only repeat, I hope you will soon start losing a couple of bets. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid that's all we got time for. Thank you both. Thanks, Gary, Mark. Uh, and thank you for watching and listening. Don't uh, forget, of course, to uh, hit the subscribe button and watch this space. We've got plenty more lined up. Thank you.